Chapter 4 When I first got to campus, I was nervous to move away from home, but also anxious and excited. Leaving my parents' house was a huge breath of freedom. I had a spot in the Emily Carr dormitory on campus, EC 104, right next to the Student Union Building pub. Who would I see moving in at the same time? Eli, that's right, Eli from my neck of the woods, whom I had played chess with at his elementary school, ran into at Chess Provincials, sat next to in math class in grade eight. He was living four doors down the hall. Right next door to me were a couple of guys from Vancouver. I could tell these guys came from well-off families immediately. Meeser and Matthews, two ultra-popular guys who seemed to know a bunch of people who had come to UVic from Vancouver. They always had people hanging out in their double room. Meeser was a year older, two years older than me. He had gone to Vancouver Community College beforehand. I guess a lot of girls also went there or something. He was a total social guy, real talker. Girls loved talking to him. He could get booze, no issues. That for sure made him super popular. Matthews was a bit more aloof. He was a comedian and loved the attention. He loved the ladies too. Matthews had a BCID from one of his brothers. He was young like me. It was flawless. These guys rolled into school ready. On my first day of arrival, I registered for an orientation tour which took us around the student campus and showed us different parts. On the tour, I met a guy named Mio. Mio was Filipino from Terrace, BC. He was decked out in stylish hip-hop attire. He was shorter than me. I think we bonded because we were minorities. Mio lived off campus and was a DJ, a scratch DJ. I was into hip-hop and had an interest in DJ culture. After all, I had already produced my own single. Mio was cool. He knew all about DJing, hip-hop culture, and language, much more than I did. Mio would say words like dope and tight. He had a bunch of vinyl. I had never heard those words used before in front of me. Mio would keep my interest in music, or more particularly, audio editing alive. I sampled the Rent theme song and added a dope beat in that first semester. Mio was also into ball and he mentioned his brothers played more than he did. I grew apart from Mio a bit over time, largely because I got more into making friends on campus, but probably more importantly, I lost his ID. It was a huge sour grapes moment for our friendship, I felt. Mio was short, shorter than me. He had a short haircut, quite similar to mine. Into the second semester, people were starting to turn 19 and go out to the bars. I felt major FOMO, but I was just turning 18 that year. People had said we looked alike. Was that them being racist? I took their words to heart and decided to hit Mio up for his ID. He didn't even drink. Might as well let someone enjoy being 19 if you can't, I thought to myself before asking him. Mio was a super nice guy. I was overreaching by asking him. 
though I didn't realize it at the time. I didn't know him that well, but we did hang out a bit and check out Victoria together a little as we were both new in town. The reason I borrowed the ID was a bunch of people from my dorm floor were going out to two nightclubs downtown. I had never been to a nightclub, having just turned 18 and had to go. The first bar was a gay bar that had the best music in town, apparently. I managed to get into the club without issue. I think in those days, the market had yet to develop fully. The bouncer looked at the ID, looked at me, and smiled, handed Mio's ID back to me, and proceeded to let me in. It was loud and dark. This place was small. I wasn't used to this kind of music. It was too much, I thought. I looked around for my friends, and one or two seemed to be remaining, Chucky being one of them. I guess I got to this place a bit late. The three of us that were the last ones there decided to walk over to Legends, the most popular nightclub in Victoria. That was the destination for the night. Legends is in the basement of the Strathcona Hotel, which has several watering holes throughout the building, including Big Bad John's, the main bar, and a bar on the roof. It's a big operation, to say the least. When we got there, it was busy, but no line to get down the stairs. I handed the bouncer the ID. He looks at me, looks at it, and says, this isn't you, and pockets the ID. I'm dumbfounded. Just like that, Mio's ID was gone. I said, hey man, I'm sorry. It's my friend's birthday, and I was just trying to get in. This is my friend's ID. He lent it to me. I need to get that back to him, I said. People appreciate honesty, I thought to myself. Get your friend to come down here tomorrow and pick it up, answered the bouncer. I breathed a sigh of relief, but I still had to break the news to Mio. During that semester, Eli and I would hang out a lot, playing chess in the hallway, shooting hoops in the gymnasium, and working out in the gym together. There were a few major differences though. Eli was taller, cocky, he talked the walk, I guess you could say. I never talked trash. I let my game do the talking. He had already been lifting weights and had the guns to back it up. He was more of an all-rounded athlete than focused on any one particular sport at that time. During that period, Eli would focus on track and field, specifically the 100 meters. We would train together sometimes when he ran sprints. I was not a sprinter at all and actually hated it. Eli wanted to get me running short distances. I was an endurance runner. I wasn't super into it. I think Eli saw my passion for basketball. Eli told me if I trained with him, I would make the UVic basketball team. I didn't believe in myself. One time he said he ran into Steve Nash on the track there at UVic. I missed out. I should have trained with him. Eli reminded me a bit of Escott. No fear. He had a poster of Bruce Lee in his dorm room. He was also a football fan. He would wear a Kansas City Chiefs hat a lot. He was from Saskatchewan originally and always said he liked the Rough Riders. Eli told me he had Olympic aspirations. Wow. Were we dancing with the same Jane? 
I thought at the time Eli would be successful at the 100 meters. He got the opportunity to race with some Canadian sprinting icons. Canada was big at the time after Donovan Bailey's rise to fame. Eli was a rising star. Eli once told me a story of how he broke his leg playing football. The doctors said he would never play sports again. He said he was treated by a special healer. I can't recall the exact details. The picture painted was that it was a miracle he could run like he did again. At the time, I'm not sure I understood how that had affected him or what kind of miracle was performed, but it seemed to have a significant impact on his life and trajectory. Hanging out with someone a lot, things start to rub off on one another. I was getting stronger and still becoming a better basketball player. I may have shelved basketball at UNBC to a certain extent, but the passion and fire was still inside me. Neither of us ever said anything at the time about how many times we ran into each other prior. We seemed to have two things in common, at least. We both were super competitive, we liked to win, and we were well received by the ladies or so it seemed. Maybe more so him than me. Eli and I hung out with a few other people on the floor. Smelly from the Yukon was one of them. Smelly was not cool. He was the opposite of cool. I guess up in the Yukon, it's too cold for cool. Literally, Smelly was a real bushman. No hairstyle, thick, Coke bottle glasses, like the guy from Trailer Park Boys. No personal hygiene. It was kind of gross. His dorm room had an odor. Smelly was a loner. He would eat in his room alone. Eli seemed to invite Smelly into this friendship circle. I probably wouldn't have done it. Smelly seemed clueless to all those aspects of cool I encountered and battled growing up. Some coolness rubbed off on Smelly over the years. I told him to get some hair gel too. I think he managed to get a date while we were at school. Well done. The first time I met Jane was with Eli and Smelly. We hotboxed a storage locker in the basement of EC. We taped up one of the storage lockers with garbage bags and packed bowls inside. The first time I didn't get it. Like many before, I said, I don't feel it. There was such a stereotype about it in those days. I had no idea about it because the private school kids I had gone to school with didn't get mixed up with narcotics. Eli asked me one time if I had to choose between Mary Jane or booze for the rest of my life, what I would choose, said Mary Jane. For me, she took the edge off some of my sensitivities that needed dulling and heightened others, which made me attuned to my ability to process the information from my innate observational skills. It also felt like I connected with God. It was a plant. 
It was natural. Hell, it was written about in the Bible. They used to burn it in Buddhist temples, I would find out. With alcohol, I got funny, bold, talked more, was smoother with girls, but also became more aggressive. Being competitive and drinking leads to more drinking. That is a curse. My relationship with Tia was still going on. I would go back to stay with my parents every so often and visit her, or she would come out and see me. I also spoke to her on the phone. The frequency of meeting her decreased over time and we grew apart. For my summer break, I had a job lined up for July and August working on a commercial salmon seine vessel. I would be away for two months. Somewhere in that time, my love for Tia faded or perhaps was stretched too far. I was living in a different world than before. I seemed to have expectations developing about university and the direction it was going, and I didn't feel Tia was aligned. I think Tia also sensed this. A relationship hadn't matured with us. I had become distant to her. That summer was a mentally and physically grueling one. Remember my soft high school classmate SJ? I invited him along too. Not everyone was super rich from Southridge. SJ also had pressure to make money, and I was happy to bring someone I knew on the boat. The boat operated up the coast of British Columbia, primarily from Port Hardy all the way to Prince Rupert and the Queen Charlotte Islands. It was a five-man crew. We lived on board and went out to fish for a day or up to five at a time. It was 15-hour days. We'd typically fish from 6 a.m. till 9 p.m. Sometimes sail at night to a new fishing grounds or unload the fish onto the packer in the middle of the night. Sleep was scattered. That season was an epic season in terms of salmon. SJ and I were greenhorns. There was another young guy, Christo, who had worked the year before, and Rick, who had been out a few seasons. Romanov, the skipper, likely used to drink on the boat but now had a dry policy on board. My father had got me the job. He had worked with Romanov on a project related to selective species release techniques. His concept was to add some boards with slits into the bunt that would allow juvenile fish to escape through the bunt end of the net. My parents invited Romanov over for dinner before the summer to set up the gig. Romanov was cordial sipping his white wine, a good dinner guest. I didn't know much about fishermen. Sane boat fishing is very interesting logistically. It's also very dangerous, especially inland salmon seine fishing. The net is typically released from the fishing vessel as it passes along the coastline. A two-man skiff team has one end of the net attached to a line. They drive the skiff up onto the shoreline. The tie-up man jumps out of the boat, carrying the line up the beach and ties a strap around a tree or rock. 
then ties the line to the strap. The boat swoops out around, forming a hook shape extending off the land to the stern of the boat. It tows the net for approximately 20 minutes to allow the salmon swimming along the shoreline to get hurdled into the net. The boat cuts towards the land and the guy on shore unties the knot and the line on the end of the net gets pulled into the side of the boat and a purse is formed around the boat with the net. The lead line of the net is lined with rings. The rings are gradually brought up onto the side of the boat, tightening the purse, causing all the fish to come up alongside the boat in the net. A brailer or scoop is used to scoop up the fish, approximately 200 fish and drop them into a sorting box where restricted or endangered species are sorted out and released. Americans and First Nations don't necessarily have these same restrictions. The rest of the fish are dropped into the hatches and stored in ice water below. The process is repeated throughout the day. I was the drum man on the boat. I kept the beat. Just kidding. I could move the drum both ways. Move a spooler, lower or raise the ramp, and adjust the bow thrusters. I was like the helmsman off Star Trek, I thought. In the middle of bringing the net on board, the boat would drift. The captain would keep an eye on where we were, though it was my job. We didn't want to run up onto the rocks or the bottom. I watched the net. He would yell, port thrusters. I'd yell back, port thrusters. To turn them off, he'd say, kill the thrusters. I'd replied, killing the thrusters, or thrusters killed. The drum wraps the net back onto the boat. It is operated through hydraulic controls. I would basically thread the net back onto the drum using two rollers and also hit the brake if there was backlash on the net when releasing it. It was considered one of the safer jobs on the boat, but was still rather freaky when you have a massive net and lines flying off in huge circles when the boat is releasing the net. I enjoyed sitting in the wheelhouse from time to time, asking Romanov about fishing. This man had dedicated his entire life to fishing, and he was at the top of his game. I was genuinely interested in the industry. Fishing was tough. It was real manpower work. You had to work as a team. Everyone had their own role. It toughened me up a lot, physically, mentally, and emotionally. One of the technical challenges among many that occurs on a same boat is called a roll-up. It occurs when the lead line of the net goes over the cork line. The net gets twisted around, hooked, and raveled up in itself. It becomes like a giant anaconda. One roll-up can be long, 30 feet, even longer. When that occurs, the net is basically half useless. Eventually, you've got to get it out. You bring the entire anaconda onto the stern of the boat. The only way to get it out is by hand. You have to pick the net up and shake it. 
clawing at it to try to loosen it. The proper technique is to clench it in your hands like claws and shake your arms in a bicycle pedal motion forward or back depending which way you are facing or the knot is located. It's exhausting, gut-wrenching, muscle-draining work. The net in anaconda form is heavy. It saps the energy out of your arms. Total muscle fatigue. Guys, fortitude crumbles during roll-ups. It's hard to find where the net's caught up. Guys start to slack off in dismay during roll-ups. Romanov would be standing there watching you trying to figure it out with his waxed ball cap, occasionally scratching his bald head, but usually with his hands tucked into his green overall wet skins, glaring through his polarized aviators while keeping an eye on the school of fish in the net. Romanov would get anxious. Money was on the line. This wasn't fun and games. Come on, let's fucking go, he'd bark. During those moments, Romanov would take it upon himself to show you how it's done. Hey, fuckface, he blurted out this time. Get the fuck out the way, he continued. He jumped between the crew member and the anaconda, almost body checking him out of the way. Romanov was a stout man. He would remind me of Napoleon at times due to his stature, but mostly leadership. The roll-up? He would pick it up and just give her shit. He would almost expect a giant roar like a lion while he was shaking the roll-up. It was so intense. I don't think I'd ever seen that kind of intensity in an adult not even performing a sport. Somehow, he would find the knot's hidden location and loosen it up, throwing it back into the crew's arms to finish the job up. It was inspiring, to say the least. Romanov was an ex-lacrosse player, tough as nails, and had a foul mouth. He used words like cunt face and fuck face. Sometimes you had to pause and think about the combinations of swear words he was using. I had to bite my tongue to stop from laughing a couple of times when Romanov was yelling at others. The word combos were hilarious. Not that he was yelling at others. Romanov didn't really ever yell at me like that, though. I don't know if it was because he respected my father or because he didn't have to. I read Romanov well and knew how not to piss him off. I also gave it 100% on the boat, so he had no reason to. I don't think I had ever seen a 60-year-old man move quite like Romanov. Romanov showed me what real intensity was all about. It was a moment like when I had discovered how I could be first at long-distance running despite my conditioning. Back on land, I would apply that to my basketball game. Mastering intensity in sports is essential. You can't be 100% all the time. You gotta know how and when to turn it on. One of the toughest parts of fishing at that age is knowing it's summer and all your friends can meet up and have fun 
while you were trapped on this boat away at sea with a bunch of stinky guys, fish slime and jellyfish that gets on your skin and eyes and burns them. When you have a girlfriend back home, it's twice as bad. Your mind wanders. You start to worry. Not everyone can handle that type of isolation, that kind of work, or that kind of pain. My mind wandered for sure. It takes real heart and courage to save those endangered spring salmon and coho when all the fish in the sorting box are kicking up the red jellyfish into your eyes and down your neck. It itches and burns like hell. In fact, SJ and Kristoff both waved the white flag halfway through the season. I think SJ developed a rash on his wrist from the salt water and his jacket rubbing against his skin. He couldn't take it. He would bitch about it. I got a rash too. I put some polysporin on it and sucked it up. I remember pussy was a trash talk word he used to call me when he played ball. Here, SJ was the pussy. I didn't say anything. I could see it in his eyes. Romanov had been berating Kristoff, too. Pretty abusive, some of the language he used, if you ask me. But that was the industry, I guess. What did I know? They left us in a real bind, too. SJ and Kristoff hopped off the boat in the middle of the night while we were up in Prince Rupert. They waited outside the bus station till the morning and took off without letting the skipper know. I knew something was up. SJ told me he couldn't handle it. I tried to talk him out of leaving. We were already more than halfway through the season. I also said we were making really good money. I even tried to guilt trip him, saying he was leaving me hanging. It wasn't enough. SJ had mentally already checked out. I couldn't convince him. The guy who called me out as a thief in the halls of Marriott and a pussy on the court really let me down when I gave him a chance, I thought to myself. It was me who had recommended him to the skipper. That's why I was so sensitive to the issue. It wasn't an easy job to get either. Replacing two crew members mid-season is not an easy feat. We only managed to replace one for a while. So we were shorthanded for much of the remaining season. I had to pick up a lot of the slack. My workload increased by nearly 50%. I almost broke down mentally on the boat. I was alone. I toughed it out though. I thought of my father. When my father left Sri Lanka, he was 18. That was before the 60s. His first job upon arriving in England was working in a hospital mortuary. He moved dead bodies around. 
I think he had to face a lot of racism back then in the UK. People probably assumed he couldn't speak English or wasn't educated. My father had finished from the top school in Colombo, Royal College. He would always be talking about the Royal versus St. Thomas matches, the other boys top school in the city. Jeez, this couldn't be as bad as that. I should have known SJ was too soft, but I didn't expect that fishing season to be so rough. Romanov knew my father. I could not quit. My father would not be happy. He had recommended me to Romanov. I'd be letting my father down if I quit. SJ's parents were split up. He didn't have a real father figure around growing up, it seemed. SJ and I connected on the fact we were coming from families with much less wealth than our peers' families, I felt personally. He also was into cars and worked a part-time job to buy his first truck for which I gave him respect, since that wasn't the norm at our school. We were both responsible, probably the only two students, in actually using our own two hands to physically build the new permanent senior school. We both worked the summer of grade 11 at the school with the millwrights installing the different cabinets and countertops in all the classrooms and helping them clean up the job site. It was amazing to see the senior school come together that summer. We were involved in building history. I thought, did I carve my initials anywhere? I still cursed him the rest of that season. What that did translate to was a big paycheck for me. I made a crazy amount for that age, just over $17,000 in seven weeks. 